obviously chapter 7. Basically, God is giving an indictment against Israel. Again, to sort of bring everybody up to speed, Hosea is written just before the exile of the northern kingdom. So most of the indictment in Hosea is against the nation of Israel. Judah has come in for some criticism also, but in historical fact, Judah won't go into exile until a century later than Israel does. But they don't escape the notice of the prophet. Chapter 8, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of God because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. The idea of a vulture over the house of the Lord, we've talked in the past that one of the things that's going on in Hosea is that the leadership of Israel is preying on the people of Israel. And that's sort of a recurring theme in the book of Hosea here. So the idea of having a vulture over the house of the Lord, I would suggest is talking as a minimum of the priesthood and probably also the leadership of Israel. Then the idea that they're crying out to God in verse 2, my God, we, Israel, know you. In their distress, they are crying out to God and God's not listening to them, and the reason he isn't listening to them is because they haven't been faithful. One of the things this reminds me of is whenever we have a major disaster in the United States, and, and the last big one, of course, was 911. Churches just filled up immediately after 911, and people were crying out to God, and they were saying, "God, you know, we're we're your people. I can see Israel." And in fact, Jeremiah talks about it. Israel does the same thing. They, uh, Judah does the same thing. When the Babylonians are about to invade, they go into the house of the Lord and they cry. And, and God says, uh, folks, you have made my house a den of thieves. The only time a thief runs to his den is when the cops get too close. So the idea is that Israel running to the house of the Lord when they are in trouble is analogous to a thief running to his hideout when the cops are too close. It isn't that he loves the hideout, it's just that he's more worried about the cops out there than the discomfort of being in the hideout. So what's being described here then is Israel crying out to God, saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, God, we are your people. And God says, well, you haven't been faithful to me, so I'm not going to listen to you. Don't get me wrong, going to God when you're in trouble is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that. What God is saying through the prophet here is Israel has strayed off. They've gone into idolatry. They're no longer walking in Torah. The leadership of the country is preying on the people. The place is a genuine mess. And going to church on Shabbat isn't going to solve that problem. Verse 4. They made kings but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. So again, the idea is the kings and the princes that have been set up are not the ones God would have chosen. Because remember what happens in certainly the case of Saul and the case of David. Both Saul and David were picked by Samuel, who was a prophet. 
the idea that God is the one that picks the king goes all the way back to the first king, which is Saul. And what God is saying is, yeah, you guys have raised up kings, but they aren't anybody I liked. Verse 5. Actually, let's pick it up at four and a half. With their silver and gold, they made idols to their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? So the idea of the calf is when the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom, Rehoboam was worried that if the Israelites went south to the temple in Jerusalem for the feasts of ascent, that his kingship would not last. In other words, if the only place you can legitimately go to worship is in the next kingdom, then why have a kingdom of your own? And of course, to, to solve that problem, he set up two golden calves, one at Bethel and the other one at Lachish and Dan. Samaria is the center of the northern kingdom. So when God is talking about the golden calf of Samaria, he is talking about those two idols. And then in verse 5, let me read verse 5 again. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. Against them, who would them be? I believe it's the kings and the princes. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Now, the idea of innocence here can mean a couple of things. Obviously, if you are accused of a crime, being innocent means that you didn't do the crime. Innocence can also mean lack of sophistication or lack of being worldly. Like a child is innocent because they're at some point untainted by the world. And so the idea here is that the leadership in Israel is gone into idolatry, they've gone into worldliness, they have worshipped the creation instead of the creator, and so in that sense they have lost their innocence. And again, the metaphor that's being used of Israel is a prostitute. Even when a prostitute is not plying her trade, she is not an innocent. She is somebody who is worldly, who is coarse, whom the world has soiled. Or she has put herself in a position to be soiled by the world. And so the idea of not being cleansed is certainly in that same spirit. Verse 6. For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. It is from Israel is the calf that we're talking about. Verse 7. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no head, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up already among the nation as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone, Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nation, I will soon gather them, and the kings and princes shall soon writhe against the tribute. Start off with verse 7. They sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Is Again, the idea that they are not sowing their seed where they're supposed to be sowing it. And because of that, they're not going to reap a crop. In other words, they, he, put, he may be talking physical grain, as in famine, he may also be talking spiritual grain. There's no bread that is made from the worship that they are engaging in. And then Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. Why would they be described as a useless vessel? 
They're supposed to be a nation of priests. They are supposed to be a vessel into which God can pour his spirit and out of whose belly flows rivers of living water. So the idea is a vessel fit for the use of the Lord is what they were intended to be. But they're out among the nations now and they are a useless vessel because in their idolatry they are no longer fit for the Lord's use. Verse 9, they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone, Ephraim as hired lovers. I have forgotten what passage it is, but one place in, in Prophets, God describes Israel as a donkey in heat. When a donkey's in heat, you don't need to find her, she'll find you. And so that's the metaphor here. Israel in idolatry is promiscuous and is useless to God. One of the things that they are trying to do is they are trying to make alliances. So they've tried to go up to Assyria to make an alliance. And then verse 10, though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes soon writhe because of the tribute. In other words, they are going to be conquered by a foreign power and put under tribute. Verse 11, but Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning. They have become to him altars for sinning. The idea here is the more Israel prospers, the more idolatrous they become, which is, of course, just the opposite of what God would hope, that the more he blesses them, the closer that they would cleave to him. Verse 12, were I to write for him my laws by the 10,000, they would be regarded as a strange thing. One of the comments I made last time, and I'll sort of briefly make it again, is in this country, during our formative years, we used to have scripture on all of our public buildings. You all have lived through the Ten Commandments Wars, where people have worked very hard to get expressions of the Ten Commandments out of courthouses and county seats and so forth. And the idea is, the thing that you put on your most important places are the things that you're saying are important to you. Even though most people do a really poor job of following the Ten Commandments, the fact that we have the Ten Commandments on our public buildings and wherever you go to do government business, you are faced with the Ten Commandments is a statement of value of the country as a whole. They're not laws in the case of somebody is going to come after you if you work on Sunday or Saturday, depending on how, what you think your Sabbath is. The whole point is it's, it's, it's a statement of what you believe as a society. And so what God is saying here in verse 12, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. I will suggest that if you were to go to any school in the United States and ask a school child to tell you what the Ten Commandments are, there would be very few that could. They're now becoming a strange thing to our people. Verse 13, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. What they're doing is they are going through the form of sacrifice. In other words, the priests are in the tabernacle or the temple. And in uh, the northern kingdom, they are at the two sacrificial places uh, where the golden calves are. 
They're going through the motions, they're doing the sacrifices, they're eating the sacrificial meat, but God is not accepting any of it. In other words, they're doing the form of religion, but it's, it's, as far as God's concerned, they're wasting their time. Verse 14, For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send fire upon his cities and devour her strongholds. This is now pointed at Judah also. Notice we've been talking about Israel, but now we've switched over and talked to talk about Judah. At this point in history, I regard this as a prophetic warning. The idea here is if Judah, your sister, is about to go into exile, and oh, by the way, the same fate awaits you if you walk in the way that she walked. It's sort of like when Jonah went to Nineveh. Jonah didn't say, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. That's not what he said. What he said is, as he started walking through Nineveh, it's 40 days. It's coming down in 40 days. And it was just a flat, it's coming down in 40 days. There was no conditions. There was no, if you don't, there was nothing. It's just, it's coming down in 40 days. And he walks through the city saying that. The king of Nineveh hears it and says, huh, I think we ought to put on sackcloth and ashes and everybody ought to fast. Maybe we can get the Lord to relent. But notice there's no conditional in there. And in fact, they do repent. They do put on sackcloth. And in fact, God does repent, which of course chaps Jonah no end because Jonah wanted him destroyed. But I regard this verse 14 in that same spirit. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will set fire to his cities and shall devour her strongholds. That is not a conditional prophecy for Judah. So one way you can look at it is in the same spirit as Jonah at Nineveh. This is what's going to happen. And Judah then repents when they see the destruction of Ephraim and buys themselves a century. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is it's just yet future, because it does in fact happen. Chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaken your God, and you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. A couple of things are happening here. Baal, the pagan god, is a god of fertility and is also a god of agriculture. And one of the things that's, that's happening, and it, it's very much like what has happened in Christianity, is God has set up festivals. How many people have seen scarecrows, for example? Those are pagan. They are, in fact, pagan idols. They go back to Babylon, and most people who put them up have no idea. Depending on your perspective, it's sort of like putting a pumpkin on your porch in the fall. I mean, it's just a decoration. You know, oh, gee, isn't that cute? We have a little scarecrow on our field, and you know, our field is now official. It looks like something out of Disney. Isn't that cute? Well, no, it's not. And so the idea then of, in a harvest, giving honor to pagan gods annoys God no end, because God takes it seriously. 
even if you don't really understand what you're doing, God does understand what you're doing. And he may cut you some slack personally if you don't understand what you just did, but that doesn't mean that he's happy with the process. The idea here is they are giving honor to Baal for the harvest, which is what the threshing floor and the wine vat are talking about. God's saying, okay, enough of that. You playing the prostitute with this foreign god, your threshing floor and your wine vat will not feed you anymore. And the new wine is going to fail you. And you shall not remain in the land of the Lord. In other words, the land itself is now going to vomit you out. Now, when they get scattered, some of them do flee to Egypt. Most of them get taken off into Assyria. So they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So again, the idea is not only are you going to be conquered and taken away to Assyria, but you're going to be absorbed. You're going to assimilate. You are going to lose your identity. Because remember, when Judah goes to Babylon, they do in fact maintain their identity. You've all read the book of Daniel. Daniel is a captive of Babylon. They elevate him to a high place and says, you get to eat at the king's table. And Daniel says, uh, maybe not. Really don't want to eat at the king's table. No offense, but I really don't want to eat at the king's table. So Judah maintains its identity. Ephraim does not. And I've speculated in the past why Judah maintains its identity and Ephraim does not. Anybody remember why? I think that the practical reason that Judah does not get absorbed is, first off, Judah is going to be the tribe through whom the Messiah is born. And so you have to have Judah intact to come back from Babylon so that you can have the birth of Yeshua in Israel. And if Judah also disappears and nobody ever comes back, then you can't have the birth of the Messiah. And the other answer is Judah gives Satan somebody to concentrate on, and Ephraim is out in the world being very fruitful, because remember, who gets the blessing of Abraham? Ephraim. So Ephraim is the one that has the blessing of Abraham, fruitfulness. I believe that Ephraim is out there being fruitful, and when God finally does gather everybody back, it's going to surprise Satan and everybody else just how big Ephraim has become. Judah, the older brother, has been the one who has stayed faithful to God, and has, to use the metaphor of the prodigal son, has been out in the sun tending the flock and doing all that kind of stuff, and oh, by the way, taking the slings and arrows from Satan, while the younger brother, Ephraim, has gone out and squandered his inheritance and so when Ephraim comes back, there, I think there's going to be a little friction with Judah. Eventually there'll be a big party, but I think Judah is going to be just a little bit resentful, naturally so. I'm not faulting Judah. You've all read The Prodigal Son, and The Prodigal Son's emotions are very understandable. We're all the way to verse 4. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What's mourner's bread? There's a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 26:14, where the farmer comes up at one of the feasts of ascent, and he makes a statement. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, 
or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. There's not a problem with eating bread while you're mourning. That's not the case. But the bread that you eat in the process of mourning is not suitable to come in to the tabernacle. They are pouring out drink offerings and bringing sacrifice, but they are like mourner's bread. In other words, they're not acceptable. Their bread is only usable to satisfy their physical hunger. In other words, you, you can eat this bread, but it shall not come into the house of the Lord. Verse 5, what will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. When the Assyrian comes down, he's going to take out the northern kingdom. Some are going to flee from destruction, and they're going to flee to Egypt, and they're going to die there. So they're going to die in exile also. They're just not going to be taken by the Assyrians. They're going to go down to Egypt and disappear. Verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. I think it means that their prophets are going to be false prophets. It is the fact in Israel, and, and in fact all ancient kingdoms, that you had prophets on the staff of the ruler. And the way it's described is you have prophets of Baal that eat at Jezebel's table. So the idea is you have prophets that are on your staff because their job is to look at things from a spiritual perspective while you're looking at things from a worldly perspective. To see what's going on in the spiritual, perhaps see what's going on in the future, to advise you and so forth. So the idea of having prophets on your staff is very normal for that time and that place. And what I think this is saying is the prophets that you have on your staff are going to be false prophets. The prophecies that they give you, thinking that they are speaking for God, are in fact going to be wrong. Verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. What are the days of Gibeah? What fits is the Benjaminite civil war. In the book of Judges in chapter 19, there is a Levite who is traveling with his concubine, and he stops for the night in Gibeah. The inhabitants of Gibeah basically intend to treat him just the way the inhabitants of Sodom intended to treat the two angels. So in the middle of the night, they come and bang on the door, and they said, we want this Levite to come out so we can sodomize him. What they do is they send the concubine out instead, and she is raped and murdered. And that launches what's known as the Benjaminite Civil War, where the other 11 tribes of Israel go to war against Benjamin and bring them almost to destruction. I think that's what may be being talked about here, is they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. So what we're talking about is they have become as Sodom and Gomorrah. The sin of Sodom is not misuse of the reproductive system. God didn't sand them off because of the strange way that they wanted to do sex. 
he sanded them off because they were intent on murdering. And in that process, they were going to do some sexual stuff to them. But what was going to wind up happening is the visitors were going to die. Violence, lack of hospitality, etc., etc. Verse 10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on a fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. So like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on a fig tree in its first season. And it also shows up in Ezekiel, where God has this metaphor of finding Israel alone in the wilderness. And the metaphor there is she's like an infant girl who is been discarded in the wilderness and is still covered with the blood of her birth. One of the things that was done, at least in Greece and probably other places, is unwanted babies were exposed. They didn't have surgical abortion so much like we do, so when you had an unwanted baby, what they would do is they would take it up onto the hillside and leave it there naked and it would just die. It was called exposure. So the idea in the Ezekiel passage is God comes upon Israel as a newborn female child who is still in the blood of her birth. He cleans her up, wraps her up, nurtures her, and she then grows up and so forth. That's the metaphor there. Here, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on a fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. So the idea here is... God found Israel when it was just Abraham. He nurtured Abraham and his seed up to the point where he finally takes her out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And then at the end of the wilderness journey, we have the business with Baal Peor, where the Moabite women come into the camp and seduce the Israelite men, mostly Simeonites, and that affair is stopped when Phineas takes a spear and frog sticks two of them while they're in the act of use your own imagination. In this verse 10, at the end of verse 10, they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. And again, that's referring to the incident with Phineas and uh, Cosby and Zimmer. All the way to verse 11. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. We talked about this on Shabbat. The blessings of God are human thriving, and they are described in terms of fertility. None of your women will miscarriage, nor will any of the females in your flocks. So the idea is fertility is a blessing. What he's saying here is that blessing is going to go away. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception, and any children that you do have are going to be destroyed until none is left. Verse 13, Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. So again, the idea of a palm, I will suggest, is 
fertility, fruitfulness, if you will. Remember, I said a few minutes ago, Ephraim is the tribe upon whom rests the blessing of Abraham. And the blessing of Abraham, which goes to Ephraim, is the blessing of descendants and the blessing of wealth, bountiful harvest, fruitfulness, etc. Not just human fruitfulness, but fruitfulness of the labor of your hands, etc. That is the blessing of Abraham that is passed on to Ephraim. And notice that it's backed out here. Verse 15. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. I am not real clear what's, what happened to Gilgal. It isn't clear. Other than Gilgal is one of the cities in Ephraim. And you remember uh, Gilgal is north of Jericho, down in the Jordan Valley. And that's where Joshua camped. That was the place where they circumcised themselves after they came up out of the wilderness. That continued to be an Ephraimite city. I don't know what incident happened at Gilgal that got God so upset, but something happened. I, I just don't know the answer to that one. Verse 16. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. And that is, in fact, what's happened to Ephraim. Remember we talked earlier that Ephraim is the one who has lost its identity. Gone out into the world, there are wanderers among the nations, but they don't even know who they are anymore. And notice this is all in, in, couched in the context of fertility. Tell me about closing prayer. 